In our country, we have 4 million counter workers and half a million cooks. And the national average pay per hour for these individuals is $11. You're listening to What's Work Got to Do With It, your go-to resource on all things workplace safety, health, and well-being. This podcast series invites you into the conversation as we discuss how our workplace conditions like work hours, occupational stress, job safety, and other issues affect our lives at work and at home. We go into the science behind it all and talk about what we can do to reduce work-related risks and promote well-being. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is a production of the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences and the Oregon Healthy Workforce Center and is produced by the podcast team, including myself, Helen Shuckers, Anjali Ramishbabu, Sam Greenspan, and Nicole Gilfoy. Excited to have you here for another year of what's work got to do with it. Happy 2022. Today, we will be revisiting a talk from our 2021 fall symposium. So twice a year, Our institute, as well as the Oregon Healthy Workforce Center, along with partnership from the Portland State University's Occupational Health Psychology Program, in the spring and in the fall, we host a full day of talks on a specific occupational health and safety topic. And last fall, we addressed the topic work-life challenges and integration in the context of COVID. So we all know during the pandemic, life has taken on a whole new meaning in terms of integrating our work and our home lives. Those defined lines have been blurred and with heightened work-life stress for many of us, not just for essential workers, but beyond that as well. And the sudden need to adapt to these changes during COVID has definitely given society and our workforce challenges that range from work-life stressors, disparities in employees' ability to work from home effectively, and also increase support for employees to support worker safety, health, and well-being at both at work and outside the traditional working environment. And so our fall symposium touched on many different topics ranging from creating an equitable workplace for today's workers to thrive, designing flexible workplaces to create a just economy for Black and Latinx women, work family management and remote work in the time of covid supporting low-wage workers and essential workers during COVID, as well as a panel discussion um, on essentially mandatory essential work fairness and compensation. So there are a lot of in-depth discussions around these areas from all of our speakers and our panelists. And we do have all of our talks actually posted on our symposium webpage, and I'll definitely be dropping that link in the show notes below. But today, particularly, we are going to highlight one talk and we'll definitely be highlighting another talk from our fall symposium here in the coming months. Today's talk we will be highlighting Dr. Tori Crane's talk on supporting low-wage essential workers non-work life in the context of COVID and since the pandemic essential workers have faced many different stressors. Oftentimes you know there's a huge focus on just healthcare workers but we can't forget about the other essential workers in other industries that have not received that same attention and Dr. Tori Crane's work focuses on work-life challenges. She's worked with fast food workers whose experiences can be generalized across different population groups. She also discusses supportive solutions for both organizations and supervisors. And in her research, she goes in in-depth interviews conducted with different types of essential workers during the pandemic and their supervisors. Dr. Tori Crane is an assistant professor of applied psychology at Portland State University. 
Her research is focused on the diverse work and non-work experiences of underrepresented and vulnerable workers, especially in industries and occupations that are high risk, where health and safety protections are less common and where discriminatory practices are often at play. She has worked with a variety of union and industry partners, including construction, healthcare, manufacturing, and the gig economy, with the goal of increasing support and equity for workers and their families. We hope you enjoyed Dr. Tori Crane's talk today, and we will see you on the other side. I'm so happy to be here and just grateful for the opportunity to present some stuff that we've been working on in my lab. And I'm going to be presenting some data today from a study that we did with fast food workers. You might know that, and I should just also say in the context that if you even just Google right now workers on strike, you will see so many different groups of workers who are organizing right now. Kaiser workers, Kroger workers, and then fast food workers as well, among others. So I I think it's just a really interesting time right now. As I mentioned, these fast food workers on strike in California, um, you may know that over the summer in August, McDonald's actually settled a lawsuit because their workers had sued them for better working conditions and higher wages. During that time of the pandemic, McDonald's was giving them very minimal PPE supplies, very few masks. There are reports of workers who were reusing their disposable masks and actually washing them over and over until they were so afraid that they couldn't even use them. There's also um, these terrible reports of the company giving workers actually dog diapers to use instead of masks. Um, And then this is on top of these reports of sexual harassment, workplace violence and discrimination, and then also wage theft. Um, And so I think it's also really important that as I start today to just remind all of you that as the pandemic has gone along um, and sit down restaurants closed, and then it was also harder for the public to access grocery stores, all of our fast food chains have actually seen an increase in sales and an increase in profits, yet workers are leaving those positions too. And so the workers that are left there are really facing a lot of pressure to work a lot and work in unsafe conditions. I'll just start there as kind of an example of what some of our lower wage essential workers are facing right now. So here's my plan for today. I'm I'm gonna spend a little bit of time just introducing you to this idea of an essential worker. I think we've all heard so much about who essential workers are since the start of the pandemic, but I'm gonna argue that actually, I think we've been forgetting about and ignoring a lot of these people who are doing essential work and we need to place a bigger focus on some of them. I'll tell you a little bit about what research has been done related to work and family issues, especially in the realm of low wage essential workers. And then I'm gonna finish up today by giving you an example of one of the studies that we've been working on in my lab that was a qualitative study with these essential fast food workers. So who is an essential worker? Since the start of the pandemic, there's been this really big focus on essential healthcare workers um, and first responders and frontline workers, and rightly so. Absolutely, we should have a focus on those people. But all these different industry sectors that are also deemed essential. And what you might notice is that many of these industries, such as manufacturing, such as anyone who works in dams or energy, nuclear reactors, water, transportation, these are also all high risk safety sensitive industries. And if you look at the research that's been coming out, 
there is a lot of research coming out, especially about knowledge workers and about healthcare workers, but I think we're missing a lot of other essential workers and a lot of the research and the community projects that we're doing right now. So um, I, I think a theme of my talk today is just going to be encouraging us to think hard and think broadly about what workers we're including in our research and in our community work and just really trying to reach out and reach some of these workers who are doing really hard essential work right now, but really aren't necessarily getting the support that they need. In terms of defining an essential worker, the Department of Homeland Security um, says that essential workers are anyone who conduct a range of operations and services that are typically essential to continuing infrastructure operations. Now, these could be people in public health and safety, of course, but also anyone developing essential products and then other infrastructure uh, support as well. So food and agriculture is also um, deemed an essential industry. Interestingly, the national rate of the labor force working in essential industries is estimated to be 45%. So that's a lot, that's a big percentage of our labor force. Um, in Oregon, that's about 46% of workers are in quote unquote essential industries. Um, but the important thing to know here is that usually worker status can be determined as being essential according to the industry, but exposure risk may be largely determined by occupation. And so just because the entire industry has been deemed essential, I think there's a lot of variability within that industry as to how many exposures and what exposures those people may be facing. The largest percentage is really healthcare. So about 16.7 million people or about 30% of all essential workers are in healthcare. But what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna draw your attention to the second biggest category, which is food and agriculture. And so there's about 11 million people working in food and agriculture, 20% of all of our essential workers who have continued to work during the pandemic. I also wanted to note just some vulnerable groups of essential workers as well. And so just building off of that, those food and agriculture workers, 50% of all food and agriculture workers who are essential are actually people of color. Additionally, 70% of essential workers do not have a college degree. And it's been estimated that more than 5 million, and the estimates are even as high as perhaps 20% of essential workers in our country are um, undocumented immigrants. Only 12% of our essential workers actually have union coverage. So I think it's really important to consider when we're talking about essential workers, you're not only talking about people who just on a regular basis are facing increased stressors, but in addition to the pandemic, what we're seeing, you're also talking about a situation where racism and discrimination and especially anti-blackness is necessarily going to be at play when you're talking about essential workers. And these are also individuals where labor protections are not necessarily in place. So I think we both have to talk about the health and safety issues, but that really does have to be in the larger context of racism and discrimination and mistreatment that's happening right now. I wanted to share with you a little bit of data from the American Psychological Association Stress in America poll. So since 2007, the American Psychological Association, they've commissioned this poll 
annually. And one of the really nice things they did in the last year is they included some specific questions for essential workers. And so um, what we heard from workers in that poll is that 54% of those essential workers who were surveyed said they actually relied on a lot of unhealthy habits to get themselves through the pandemic. We also heard that 29% or about a third said their mental health had worsened. 25% have been diagnosed with a mental health disorder since the pandemic started. And then 75% of all of these essential workers surveyed said they could have used more emotional support than they received. Now that you know just a little bit about who an essential worker is, and maybe you have a little bit more of a picture of what life is looking like for them, um, I wanted to transition and talk a little bit about what research has actually been done in this area around low-wage workers who are essential and their work and family issues or their non-work life. And so what's interesting is that half of Americans in low-wage occupations are deemed essential. And Gary Powell has talked about this idea that these individuals, especially in essential work, they've experienced a family lockdown where families at home, but these people also didn't experience a work lockdown. So even though family was at home, needed caregiving, there were there are challenges there, doesn't matter. I think it goes without saying that these are people who could lose their job or experience financial hardship if they fail to report to work. And so I think we've heard a lot so far, especially on the research and science side of things, about individuals caring for other people when they're working remotely, caring for other family members when they're working remotely. But then what about these individuals, um, especially those outside of healthcare too, who have to go into work every day or they could lose their job. These people who are working in grocery stores, who are working in manufacturing plants and in restaurants as well in food production. And so because of that, um, there have started to be some work in family scholars who have said, I think we really need to, we need to rethink and reconceptualize some of our even most basic work and family variables. And so um, traditionally, we've talked about work-family conflict as having these three different dimensions. So there's time-based work-family conflict, where if you're spending too much time at work, that can cut into your family time. There's strain-based work-family conflict, where if you're experiencing stressors at work, hard things at work, you can bring that home with you and you might take it out on your family members or just not be totally available to address you know, your relationships with them there. And then there's behavior-based conflict. There are certain work behaviors that don't really translate well into home life and family life. Um, but some work family scholars like Gary Powell has said, we need to add new dimensions because of the pandemic. So for example, work family health conflict, because now, especially with these essential workers, what we're seeing is people going to work and if they contract the virus there, they're going to bring it home and then that they're putting and exposing their family members. There's also an interesting thing that we've heard in our research more recently where 
not so much COVID related, but because of the pandemic and because of the labor shortage, you have more of these low wage essential workers who are being pressured to work longer hours, work faster, and are being coerced into doing more unsafe work. So when they are on the job, they're more likely to have accidents and injuries. And for certain individuals coming home with an accident or injury then means they can't fulfill family responsibilities. Um, and I think this is especially the case for people like single mothers who are the only people who can caregive for family at home. And even these um, grand families to these grandparents who are oftentimes working in these low wage jobs coming home um, caring for grandkids and then additionally themselves are also getting older and may even have chronic health issues and so i think we need to start thinking really hard about how do we rethink and reconceptualize some of even our most basic work and family variables and i think work family health conflict is one way to start doing that I want to talk now about some other ways that I think our existing knowledge of the work and family literature during the pandemic especially could be expanded on. So we have some really amazing work coming out about the work family challenges that people are facing. There are currently just a handful of studies that are focusing on samples of low wage essential workers. Some studies that focus more on low wage workers um, and not necessarily a lot of studies that are both where the samples are both low wage and they're essential, so frontline customer facing. What we see is that of those studies that are out there, many of them involve more professional level samples with higher incomes. Um, some of the studies that were done during the pandemic also uh, utilize like MTurk or Qualtrics, so more online samples with a wide variety of different types of workers. Um, and then also a real very big focus on healthcare workers and first responders. And again, all of this is really important research, but I think what we are missing are some of these other individuals who are working in these low wage essential worker jobs where there are high health and safety risks. Additionally, if you think about family structure and the way that we've conceptualized families, there's been this very large focus too on dual earner couples and people who are caregiving, but primarily as parents, and then also a focus on gender as well. And we are just now starting to see some new research come out that really looks at these other forms of family. So for example, single mothers and these grand families, I think are really interesting and in need of some support. We're doing some new research in my lab that um, one of my students, Jennifer Sacedo, is helping me with. I think, um, and we're really interested in this group of caregivers who are prim primarily young women, who, uh, like college age, even high school age young women, uh, primarily young women of color, who have since the pandemic started to take on caregiving roles for siblings, nieces and nephews and cousins, so that older siblings or parents um, can continue to be in the workforce during the pandemic. And so I think there are all these different types actually of invisible caregivers that I'm not sure that we've totally explored yet what they need that might be different from some of the other groups of individuals who are better represented in the literature. I did wanna just draw your attention to some research that has been done on special populations or individuals from more marginalized and vulnerable groups. So there is a little bit of research coming out looking at these essential low wage and high risk workers and how their work 
has been affecting some different outcomes. So there's been a little bit of research coming out, and Dr. Hurst mentioned this too, I think it was really great, on the additional unpaid work that women, especially women of color, are experiencing outside of work, especially Black women and uh, Latina women as well. And then there's been a handful of studies that have come out really looking at the increased discrimination that's been experienced by AAPI workers, especially at the start of the pandemic, and how um, those experiences of discrimination in the workplace have been carried home with them, influence family life. And then there's been some other research that's been focusing more on um, the experiences of minority fathers and how their experiences at work have affected both their health in terms of just their rates of COVID diagnosis, but also bringing workplace stress home to the family. And then lastly, there's some been some work more broadly just on service sector workers and they're, they're experiencing more precarity. So individuals who are in the service sector, one of the things we know that they've been seeing since the start of the pandemic is an increase in hours, but also an increase in predictable schedules in some cases, but in other cases, actually unpredictable tasks. So um, one of the things that's happening is that when you only have a few people on a shift or in your organization, in your company who can do certain tasks, well, then if those few people are out with COVID or out because of other issues, you then have other people filling in for different tasks that they wouldn't normally do. And for those of you who study safety, you know that if you're doing something you're not trained on and you don't know the proper safety protocols, this is also increasing your risk for accidents and injuries. Um, you know, also reports of these service sector workers having just in general increased threats to bodily integrity. So both COVID, but also accidents and injuries and safety issues. And then we're just hearing lots of reports of just a constant background foundational level of fear and anxiety that is always there, both around COVID, but also around other types of safety issues as well. And then lastly, related to stress, just increases in emotional labor too, of having to interface with the public and the public being more stressed out and then that stress being transferred onto the service worker as well. So again, just some initial studies that are coming out around some of these special and vulnerable populations. And I encourage everyone to think about more ways that we can sort of add to this knowledge base uh, about these workers going forward. Before I launch into the study that I want to talk about, I want to just bring you back to this APA Stress in America survey that I covered a little bit earlier. And I want to bring your attention specifically to this last bullet point, that 75% of all of these essential workers at the APA surveyed said that they could have used more emotional support during the pandemic. And this is something that my lab has been really interested in. And so I'm going to draw primarily on Leslie, actually Leslie's work on family supportive supervisor behaviors and supervisors providing support for employees' non-work life. And Leslie early on conceptualized um, FSSB or family supportive supervisor behaviors as having these four different dimensions. So first, emotional support. So people are, excuse me, so supervisors showing care and concern for their employees um, around their non-work life. 
instrumental support. So what are day-to-day -day things that supervisors can do to help their employees manage their work and family life? So things like making small scheduling adjustments, making small adjustments to work tasks. Third dimension is role modeling. So supervisors actually role modeling for employees how to balance work and family. And then lastly, creative work family management or doing some more proactive attempts within the organization to create better work family situations for employees that are both a win for the employee, but a win for the organization as well and can help make the organization more efficient. And so there's some really great research on FSSB that just shows that when you have a supervisor who's more supportive of non-work life and family life, employees are healthier, they're more productive, their families are healthier, and then the overall organization is more healthy as well. But much of this research was done before the pandemic. And so one of the things that we wanted to do is to really look at what supervisors and organizations are doing to support their employees during the pandemic. And so I have to give credit. This is a study that was actually led by a, one of my former doctoral students, Shaylin Stevens, who's now working in industry as a data analyst for BetterUp. Um, and she just did this incredible study on fast food workers that I wanna share with you. Um, and then I also want to just acknowledge our research assistants, you being Kim, Doug Van Anda, and Mary from Levenberg, because they all have recently spent some time working in the service industry and in fast food, and they were just so instrumental to understanding and interpreting a lot of our data that we were getting um, during the study. So to give you a little bit of an idea of what we did, um, we wanted to focus on fast food workers, and we wanted to focus on fast food workers because they were deemed essential during the pandemic, and there's actually a lot of them. In our country, we have four million counter workers and half a million cooks, and the national average pay per hour for these individuals is $11. Um, these individuals also work non-traditional hours, so um, it can be really hard balancing caregiving roles in many of these fast food working positions. And then this is a group of people who experience just really high financial stressors. So 50% of the families of frontline fast food workers are enrolled in at least one public assistance program. And it's estimated that 87% of these workers do not receive employee health benefits. So in total, we had 21 participants, and I will just go ahead and say this is probably the hardest study we've ever had to recruit for during the pandemic with people who are already facing a lot of stressors, but we had so many people who were so excited to participate. They wanted, uh, they wanted to share their stories. They wanted to do whatever they could for um, other fast food workers. And so we had a group of people, they were 18 to 43 years old, 11 identified as female, 10 identified as male. Um, we had nine individuals identifying as white, seven black, one Asian, one Hispanic, one Native American, and two multiracial. They were from 14 different franchises. So for example, Domino's, Subway, KFC, McDonald's. And we had some inclusion criteria. These individuals had to be employed at least six months. We wanted to make sure they'd been in the job for a while. Um, we didn't want any 
any of our participants to be full-time students because we really wanted to get people who were, were relying quite a bit on their work in the fast food industry as a way to live. And then we calculated low wage based on some information by some scholars at MIT. We calculated who was low wage and not on a state-by-state -state basis. So, for example, in Colorado, low wage technically is actually around $16 an hour, but in New York, it's more like $19 an hour. And so what we did is we only included people who were technically low wage by this criteria on a state-by-state -state basis. And we also said these individuals had to provide at least five hours minimum of family care per week. And we had all but one of our participants who were providing care for direct family members, so like a sibling or a child. And then we had one person who was caring for a godchild. I should also mention that we had a couple participants. We had two participants out of the 21 who had a child with a disability. The majority of our participants also had chronic health illnesses themselves. And we also had many single mothers as well in our, in our sample. Um, so in terms of our procedure, I'll just give a brief overview and not go too much into detail, but we, we had two people who we contacted early on and we asked them if they would help us pilot test our interview protocol and do a cognitive interview with them to better refine the questions that we were asking and they were incredible. So two people currently working in fast food who were just so excited to help and just gave us a ton of feedback around what to include in our protocol. We then did these hour-long semi-structured interviews and we also used probes as well. We did almost all via Zoom, but we did a couple over the phone. And all of this happened last spring. So February through April is when we recruited and then we conducted the study into the spring. So the first question that we wanted to ask with our participants was, hey, taking a step back, forget about what we know about work family issues. Just will you tell us in your experience, what are the most significant work family stressors that low wage workers face? So what are your biggest stressors? And what we heard time and time again from people is number one time, everyone said, I have difficulty with childcare. I don't know where to take my kid. I oftentimes had an arrangement and that fell through. They also talked about not having enough time with family, and they also had they also talked about I don't know how to balance the household work of cooking and cleaning and working and um, spending time with my loved ones or the person I'm caregiving for. We heard a ton about financial concerns. This was absolutely right up there with time in terms of what was most stressful to them. And then we asked them this question of who do you turn to for support and fam and many people said, well, sometimes I turn to family members, sometimes I turn to friends, but many people said nobody, I have nobody who I can turn to for support if I need it with family or work. I want to just give you a, a quote here. This woman sort of talked about both time and financial concerns. She said, I miss my kids and they miss my mom. I mean, the kids are used to me working. I've worked their entire life, so they know that mom works, mom pays the bills, mom supports them, or they can't have the things they want or they need. So they understand that I have to work, but they still say, it's not fair, mom. It's not fair, like, you know, it's not. It's not fair to them that I can't be with them as much as I want to be because I have to pay bills, I have to work, and actually I love to work, and they know that. So I really like this example because this person was 
just really talking about their stressors, but also said, I love to work and I, I have to work too. We then asked people, what are the supervisory behaviors that lower wage workers that you're interpreting as being supportive of your work family challenges? And we heard a lot about instrumental support and we primarily heard about scheduling that people said the most helpful thing people can do for me is honestly just help me with scheduling, make scheduling changes on a day to day basis. We also heard about emotional support too. So supervisors checking in with people, showing concern for them. We didn't hear as much about role modeling or creative work family management in terms of those FSSB behaviors with the sample. I want to just share with you a couple different quotes that get at this. I'll share the bottom one though. So this person said, as another example, this person said, as another example, a participant shared that management would not let him leave work to attend his friend's funerals because um, he couldn't find a substitute for a shift. So he had had multiple people die in the last two weeks and he couldn't get work off to attend their funerals. Really sad. We heard this a lot of supervisors not letting people go when they needed to go um, for really, really tragic things. Another thing that we heard that is really not represented in the current literature, we heard these really positive, amazing examples of supervisors actually financially supporting their employees. And this could be in the form of either trying to get their employees an advanced paycheck because they knew they needed to pay the bills, but it was also supervisors just themselves out of their own pocket paying bills for employees. So we heard this one amazing story of a woman who was a single mom who just had a new baby and her supervisor actually paid all of her bills for a month just out of the kindness of her heart to help her out. Here's another example of someone saying, so if you're having an emergency, like mostly for hospital bills, you can talk to her, my supervisor, and she'll help you, like she will pay you. You don't have to wait till the end of the month. The manager will pay you before the time warrants having a very valid reason. She finds it okay to pay you at that point. So we saw supervisors just going above and beyond um, to try and help out both personally and with workplace pay to help people make ends meet. So again, perhaps a new dimension. We also did a little bit of digging around what supportive that coworkers can do, but I wanna fast forward to how did supervisors respond during COVID to people? And we had some people say, my supervisor is really understanding I understand their, they understand my concerns and they're flexible with me. But then we had other people who said, my supervisor is so unsupportive. All they're doing is adding stress to my life. Um, and the biggest thing we heard is that there are just big staffing shortages that were resulting in supervisors putting more pressure on workers um, to work longer hours, to take on more shifts, and to do work that they didn't necessarily want to do. Here's an example from a male participant who said he, this person was actually out from work with COVID. Multiple people at this location had gotten COVID. And this participant said, the day I returned, I was thrown in the deep end. Uh, yeah, pretty much as soon as I got back, they're like, oh, thank God, everyone else gets three days off now, except for the people who have been gone with COVID. And I'm just like, no, no, actually, when I got back to work the first day, the district manager's like, 
oh, did you have a nice little vacation? And I was like, I almost effing died. That's not a vacation. I required those two weeks off because like, uh, chest pains through the roof. So we heard this a lot of these supervisors being completely unsupportive in addition to being completely supportive. I'm gonna fast forward here again to the coworkers and just finish up with some recommendations for organizations based on what we heard. Across all of our participants, we heard time and time again, the most critical thing was scheduling. And we heard a lot of workers say, I would like to permanently take on a coworker schedule for them and they won't let me do that. The, the, the supervisors won't let me do that. We also heard that anytime there could be a quicker turnaround on scheduling requests, that would be one of the most helpful things. And then more proactive attempts at just ideal predictable schedules as well. We heard from so many people, please just pay us hazard pay. Please pay us hazard pay. We're here. We're putting our lives on the line. Why aren't you paying us hazard pay? time off to handle family-related issues. And then lastly, we, interestingly, we heard a lot of people say, there's only two of us in this entire location who can do this one task. And if both of us are out, no one will do it. So the supervisor keeps saying, you two figure it out, but one of you has to come in. One of you has to come in. And so I, I think this speaks to the importance of just cross-training people and making sure there's people to fill in if other people are out. So in terms of what's next for this work, I think just generally we need to be listening to our workers more, especially as we're facing this mass exodus and people are, you know, they're demanding better conditions. And what do those look like for people? What do people want their supervisors and organizations to be doing? And I think especially for the workers who come from marginalized backgrounds and are in vulnerable situations, they're facing these compounded stressors, especially with racism too. And we heard these amazing examples in our study of these exceptional supervisors and organizations. And so what are they doing? that can be really helpful for employees and can we use them as models for going forward. The thing I would add though is that we heard of these amazing incredible supervisors going out of their way to just care and love for their employees but then they also themselves have their own challenges and their own stressors and I worry about burnout and what that looks like going forward. But lastly I think the biggest thing that we heard from all of our participants is just Whatever a supervisor does is great. Getting a schedule change is great. But at the end of the day, I just need to be paid enough and I just need benefits and I just need health and safety protections. And so I think that really has to be at the forefront of our conversation. Just those basic needs. I wanted to say thanks again to Dr. Tori Crane for allowing us to share her fall symposium talk on our podcast today. And just a reminder, we do have all of our symposium recordings available on our Auk Health site website, so I'll make sure to drop a link below. In the coming months, we'll definitely be announcing our spring symposium topic, so make sure to check back on either uh, our webpage, our newsletter, or our social media channels for more information on that. Thanks again for joining in on what's work got to do with it. We'll catch you later. Do you have an idea for a podcast episode? Well, we want to hear from you on important workplace issues that you would like to discuss. Email us at occhealthsci at ohsu.edu. That's O-C-C-H-E-A-L-T-H-S-C-I at ohsu.edu.
Subscribe to the Oregon in the Workplace blog or follow us on our social media channels on either Facebook or Twitter to stay updated on current research, resources, news, and community events.